Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Michael McKee in Dublin and Tom Keene in New York and with us, Willem Bowder of Citigroup. Uh, Professor Bowder, I'm going to go Matthew right now. Mike McKee will save me here uh, in a moment. The definitive expert on bank failure is a gentleman named Jean-Charles Rocher of Toulouse. Folks, I'll admit I've read one of his phenomenal Princeton University monographs and looked at every single equation like dx divided by x equals mu dt plus um, uh, omega dw. All you need to know is if a bank has what Jean-Charles Rocher calls bad technology it's irreversible, and that's the mathematics of trust. If people perceive that an institution has failures, they adapt and adjust. That's what Jean-Charles Rocher says. How can politicians help if Jean-Charles Rocher's arch theory is given bank failure, politicians have to come to a rescue, and they don't, do they? Well, the central banks come to rescue in the case of self-fulfilling fear-driven liquidity crisis. They can act as lenders' last resort, market makers' last resort, allowing institutions that are fundamentally solvent, but where there are doubts about um, uh, the first-in, first-out uh, principle. Um, so that, that's an issue. In terms of politicians helping further, all they can do is have the right regimes uh, for recapitalizing and uh, resolving banks in place so that even if an individual bank is in trouble, it doesn't right. become systemic. You answered the central bank question, but then what does Merkel do or may do in England? The politicians have to adapt away from the easy budget decisions of central bankers, right? Uh, yes, but in a way, these things are in place already, right? Um, first of all, the banks... Uh, even the most afflicted banks, have regular you know, tier one capital. They have uh, cocos and other convertibles. And then under the bank resolution okay. and recovery directive, 8% of the balance sheet can be bailed in. Right? Uh, for the largest bank in play at the moment, that would be $120 billion. So that's, uh, that's serious money. I think the, the framework is there. I think the markets are um, you know, rightly worried about the exposure of some investors, but that is very different from a systemic impact on right. the real Right, and there's economy. a key word. Mike, was that enough math for you, dx divided by x equals mu dt plus omega dw? I was following it with great interest. Thank you. Um, and, you know, we have the whole world riveted by that math that you did. But the whole world is kind of riveted at the moment, Willem, by what's going on in the German banks. But this just follows questions about the Italian banks, which followed questions about the Spanish banks, which followed questions about the Irish banks. So when does Europe get its act together and put this behind them? Uh, well, not yet. In fact, there is uh, pressure 
uh, at the highest level in Europe at the moment uh, to go easy on bank capital standards. There's a dispute, transatlantic dispute between the Americans who want more <laughs> capital and uh, uh, spokesmen for uh, the European Commission and others who uh, want to ease off. And I think that's the wrong move. I think we have to be radical. Capital standards have to be tightened and especially there has to be a crackdown on uh, the extremely subjective and manipulable risk-weighting uh, that allows uh, some banks to get away with murder. Well, what are they waiting for? I mean, when you look at what happened in the United States, putting uh, the bank problems behind them and uh, the U.S. not growing fast, but you know, the, the best horse in the glue factory right now, even Ireland, where I am today, they bit the bullet, took uh, – took their pain with the banks and now growing among the fastest in the European Union. So why doesn't that sink in? Um, uh, well, Ireland, Ireland is the only country that did it sort of of its own accord. Well, not quite of its own accord. It was at gunpoint, but it did it themselves. The only other countries that have restructured their banks to any significant extent have been under uh, programs, Greece, uh, Portugal, uh, Spain. And um, you know, unless there is a gun at the head of the national authorities... They won't voluntarily do it. Fortunately, now, um, bank regulation supervision has moved to the European level. So I have some hope that, however slow, at least there will be progress in the right direction, that we'll get um, greater recognition of losses that have thus far been swept under the carpet and uh, insistence on uh, uh, more exigent uh, capital standards, because we're not there yet. There are too many I've banks as well. Consolidation, especially cross-border consolidation, is essential in Europe. I presume that uh, all of this gets caught up in European politics, too, with the elections in Germany and France next year and Austria. Uh, there are very few politicians who want to go out on a limb at this point. No, but they don't have to, right? All that has to be done, even in the worst conceivable case, is the application of um, you know, the, uh, the bail-in rules that are already in place. You know, the implementation of the, uh, of the, of the COCOs, the convertible semi-equity into equity or it's right down according to the rules and then beyond that if more is necessary the willingness to go after unsecured uh, uh, bond holders and uh, so it's all there we simply have to get to the point of admitting uh, that it needs to be done Jeffrey Rosenberg with us, uh, with BlackRock, and of course, uh, bringing not only fixed income analysis and a wonderful cross-asset asset analysis, but doing it with mathematics um, as well. Uh, let me ask you this. Uh, in terms of Deutsche Bank and its capital and its funding, would you buy Cocos? I mean, this is touted as a another level of protection uh, in terms of capital raising, but... Uh, if if you know you're likely to get converted, um, and then you get converted into lower on the seniority scale when a bank is in trouble, wouldn't you try to get out of those in a situation like this? And doesn't that exacerbate the problem? So so maybe we should just back that up a bit so everybody understands. Cocos are contingent capital securities. So we're moving away from the conversation on funding to the other part of right. the conversation around banks. So you've got funding, which is basically do you have liquidity? Do you have the ability to roll over your, your liabilities? 
and then you have capital. Capital is the cushion against the past mistakes of having made bad loans. When those bad loans come due, somebody's got to pay the freight for that. And that's generally expected to be not the people who are deposit funders or the people who have senior bank liabilities, but rather the equity holders. And then between this concept of depositors who, who are not supposed to be on the hook for bad lending decisions and the equity owners, we have a lot of layers in between where there's different kinds of relationships between are you funding the bank or are you equity? And so contingent capital says, well, for most of the time, you're going to be on the funding side, and so you're going to look like a bond and you represent a safe asset. But if things get difficult, we're going to push those losses down into you. And so the difficulty that you're, you're talking about, Mike, is that we're when you get into these crisis periods, these securities flip. They flip from having a debt perspective and being held by people who have the perspective and risk tolerance of debt instruments to all of a sudden looking like equity. And that flip happens very quickly. And so the, you can imagine what the pricing impact is when all of a sudden a security that people think is like debt, safe, stable, income generating – all of a sudden turns into equity, much higher volatility, and in this case, the potential yeah. to lose money. And so the price impacts are, are quite dramatic. And when that shift happens, the other thing that happens is liquidity, the price, the bid-ask, the change, the ability to move in and out of those securities becomes very, very expensive and very difficult because it, it's like a call option right where the strike is at expiry. You, you really don't know whether the value is going to be par or the value is going to be something significantly below that. And so it, it's really hard to move. Those securities really should be held by folks who, who can absorb the equity price if that comes, because if you try to trade around that, it becomes very, very expensive. Well, very that's what I, why I asked, because you know this. So would you buy them? I mean, are they you're going to sell these to sophisticated investors in theory, but sophisticated investors are going to know what you just said. And there's been a question about whether these will work. And it it begins to look, when you look at Deutsche's cocoa price now, I mean, it's down another 4% today, it begins to look like this is not something that is actually going to help you in the long run. Well, remember, the, the, the cocos are, are for the benefit of the, the, the capital, and they're for the benefit of the stability of the bank's balance sheet. So when you issue them, you issue them at par, and the bank gets that par level. Afterwards, the market value is the impact on the investor, not the impact on the bank. So the, 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 the securities work because they generate capital. That capital, the market value decline, is basically saying the market is pricing in the fact that the cocos are going to work that they are going to absorb those losses. I'll, I'll agree with that. And there's a lot of fancy uh, financial philosophy there as well. The fact is the stock price, a lot of academics will say doesn't matter. Baloney, it's about confidence is, is well. We've seen that time and time and time uh, again in history. What do the adults in the room have to do to restore confidence? What is your study? You know, your years at Carnegie Mellon. What is the study of in history do institu can, can institutions restore confidence or do they just have to flat out clear markets? So, so it goes back to the, the, that, the first points I made about how structurally different the system is. Confidence shocks in a, in, in a Western-style financial system, fractional reserve banking, right? This goes back to the history of our system and, and why we have central banks to, to res restore 
uh, uh, stability because when you lose confidence, then you get these runs on the bank. So you had lender of last resort as a, as a, as a Band-Aid over that. Today, the f- structural system is changed where you, you in, as a precondition to the, 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 the system, you have that liquidity support, particularly in Europe, already in place. So that buys you more time. It doesn't solve the problem because the problem of any of these mm-hmm. systemic risks around banks is not the funding but the capitalization, the uncertainty around the asset side. And that's ultimately the solution here. You've, you've got to reduce the uncertainty around the asset side and stabilize mm-hmm. the capital. Stabilizing the capital, right, you had an external shock. You had a $14 billion headline and, and that – caused well, some uncertainty about okay. the stability of the capital. So there's a regression function. Y equals, you know, let me let me do this first and we'll get back to the math. Mike McKee's <laughs> um, sending me. Let everybody know. take a break before Let's you get to the Take a break math. before we get to uh, uh, <laughs> linear regressions quiz. or quadratic. Uh, Jeffrey Rosenberg with us. And what you just said about $14 billion, uh, gets you back to a linear function. Y equals AX plus BY plus ZZ plus the, the risk on the end, the epsilon. Are you suggesting that the massive weighting of what we're in at the end of September is about that U.S. proposed fine of Deutsche Bank? Is that the AX in the equation and has the big weighting? Well, well, certainly that was a surprise to the market. Yes. And and it's and it's a big number. And it's a big number. Yeah, but Bill Baer at the Justice Department moved Deutsche Bank last week by saying we would maybe amend with European banks. So this is not the first time that we've had these these situations. The the difference is is the manner in which the information came to the public's attention, and that the headline number came out, and the headline number had to be uh, addressed by Deutsche Bank, and and that's just a, a much bigger number than anyone was anticipating. You know the 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 settlement numbers for you you, you know analysts look at okay well what's a reasonable way to extrapolate what the eventual uh, settlement would be. You look at the size of the pre-crisis bank's exposure, what was its mm-hmm. contribution to the crisis based on its underwriting, the total size of its mortgages. And, and you, you, go, you go through the process and, and, and you had numbers that were a fraction of that size. And so the answer to your earlier question, how do you get back to stability? Well, you got to get to some clarity around exactly what the size of that number will be. And once you have clarified that, and if that number is more in line with what analysts had right, been anticipating, right, right. Three or four billion. then you can, then you yeah. can get to the point where okay the, the the Chinese asset sale the cap the retained earnings the ability to raise a bit of capital all of that can then right. solve that right. capital hole and you remove the confidence okay. shock and you remove the uncertainty on this most interesting and nuanced Friday we're going to continue with Jeffrey Rosenberg of BlackRock Michael McKee after a terrific set of interviews in Dublin remains no doubt playing golf this weekend or enjoying the sights of <laughs> Dublin wouldn't that be lovely. Interviewing Walter Badgett. I mean, that Walter, Badgett. Walter Badgett and I are playing golf. <laughs> Michael, your thoughts in Dublin. I would say the filter is different in Dublin on European banking than it is from New York. Uh, yes, because you're obviously that much closer to the European bank situation and, of course, Ireland in the Eurozone. And the Irish have gone through this as a banking crisis. So they are front and center in terms of advice on what the Europeans should do, which is do what we did, bite the bullet, get rid of the non-performing loans. But they recognize the way you do that has changed because the rules have changed. So um, I think William Bowder was 
he had some interesting views on uh, the fact that they could just go ahead and do it, but I don't think the uh, the people in banking feel it's quite that simple. Yeah. Well, everybody has an opinion. Bowder's answer is negative rates have um, efficacy here for all, and the idea of the spread uh, being there and that we've really yet to test the proper usage of negative rates. There is uh, something, Jeff, you and I know that math of, say, Black-Scholes, continuous functions is convenient and squishy, and that the real world we deal in is T, T plus 1, T plus 2. We can look back at T minus 1. Let us start with Chair Yellen's press conference, where there seems to be a mass confusion where we are in the time function. To begin with, can a central bank get out in front of the debate and get out in front of events at T plus one, T plus two, or do they just have to wait for the evidence of T plus four or T plus five? So a lot of that conversation has been around uh, inflation and inflation expectations. And will they act based on a forecast of inflation meeting their target of 2% or will they act based on the actual inflation? And they have, in the beginning, they talked about moving under the forecast and, yep. and they've really shifted the goalposts in terms of talking about waiting for actual inflation. But even when you talk Evidence. about- Even when you talk about actual inflation, the fact fact is core PCE is 1.6%. But the interpretation by various uh, members of the FOMC depends on whether you round that number up. Stan Fisher rounds up. 1.6 is pretty close. Leo Brainerd, she rounds down. We're far away. So even when the facts are not in dispute, the interpretation of those facts, the communication around that, and and it really starts to add a lot of volatility and uncertainty in the market. And Michael McGee, to translate difference equation and recurrence function mathematics, it's like getting out in front of Broncos Buccaneers football, 4.05 p.m., I believe, on Sunday, or do you wait for the evidence of the Broncos to defeat the mighty Buccaneers? Uh, Well, if you're a fan, you hide your head under the covers until the game is over. So that's what Janet Yellen, about. are you are you editorializing here? Is that <laughs> I, Janet Yellen's hiding <laughs> under the covers? Actually, what I'm doing, Tom, is looking at the price of Brent crude, 48.76, because that is going up. And as it goes up, that's going to bring inflation higher, and that's going to bring us closer to the 2% target. But the Fed is, while they say they're, they look at the PCE, that's where they base their 2% number on. The truth is, Jeff, they really are looking at the inflation expectations numbers, and you can pick your indicator, and those don't move nearly as much as the CPI and PCE does. I mean, the markets aren't convinced yet that we're going to see inflation generated by these guys. So uh, until that turns, it seems hard to believe they would do a whole lot. Um, What's it going to take to convince the people who buy the futures that there is an issue and they should get ahead of any kind of inflation. So you, you raised a whole bunch of really important points. First, the thing that I would I would correct or disagree a little bit is you don't need oil prices to go up for the oil contribution to inflation uh, to go up. You just need sure. oil to, to stabilize and the year-over-year figures will start to increase. The other big factor is the dollar. And, and similarly, you, you, if you just keep the dollar stable, the dollar contribution on import prices will also lead to higher inflation figures. So baked into the cake, based on nothing changing around those variables, you're going to have inflation 
margins start to feed back into the figures. And most importantly, when you break down inflation, it's the goods prices, the oil-related impact, the dollar impact holding down goods inflation. That starts to dissipate. It starts to come off. Inflation is going to start to go up. So the numbers on a forecast basis are going to start to go up. And what we've learned from the Bank of Japan and their experience is that people have adaptive expectations on inflation. What does that mean? It simply means we set our inflation expectations in the future based on the inflation we've experienced in the past. So once you start to see those inflation numbers come in, then the inflation expectations start to rise as well. And you can get this momentum going on inflation. And the hawks on the committee, that's what they're worried about. They're worried about getting too far behind the curve and not being anticipatory, not being forward-looking enough, and then having the the, the more historical experience of being in the position where the Fed's behind the curve. And that's where you see this debate. So the debate is not going to settle on when they raise rates, but rather the pace that they subsequently follow. And right now, what they're telling you, we're going to be very slow. The issue will be whether the market and the inflation evolution allows them to be as slow as they would like to be. And that's going to be the future issue for not that long. Next year, that'll be really critical, particularly if we start to see these inflation figures show up. You haven't seen it in the markets, as you sh- as you pointed out, because it's been a very, very disappointing trade to be hoping and expecting inflation to rise when every time you've been disappointed on that. But you think it's going to start to turn. As the numbers turn, people will begin to believe that it's going to happen and they'll start pricing it in. I think you have this this confluence of events where you have the, the kind of math econo- the, the math that's baked in the cake over the year-over-year figures uh, around the oil and the dollar impacts. You have the scenario where the Fed is acknowledging that and raising rates. And you have a very low price in, in tips, for example, Treasury Inflation Protection Securities, where, where there's no cushion in the price to increases in inflation. So the Fed's talking about a 2% target and the tips market's pricing one and a half. So you have some room there to catch up very quickly. It's part of the reason why in a little bit longer term perspective, tips is, is a sector that we really think is, is something to be thinking about and fixed income. And by tips is you've got a certain asset price to a tips vehicle. And since you're looking for a higher inflation, that tips vehicle appreciates two things Did I here get that right two yes one oh, one you. one is one is they're most attractive when the increase in interest rates that you expect comes about because of rising inflation and that's the whole story mm-hmm. that I, I just told but you, you, we think about tips as as a substitution uh, listeners in the portfolio will think about tips in well if i have treasuries in my portfolio and if inflation is starting to rise i'm holding the treasuries in my portfolio for a different reason i'm holding them for security for ballast in the portfolio in case something goes wrong. But it might be better to substitute that for tips if I'm worried at the same time that inflation may be going. You're not doing a sell-side thing, but what's your call in the Fed here? Are Are we done for the year? I mean... In November is a dead meeting. What are we going to do in December? December, you know, every, everybody's expectations are, you know, conditional on what we know today is that December is mm-hmm. the is the is the increase and and the key here, however, is if they increase in December, December 2016's 25 basis point will look very different than December 2015's. Remember last year when they gave you 25, they gave you four times a year yeah. expectation. That is gone. Yep, yep, yep. So it's going to be 25 coupled with, but don't worry, we're going to be very, very is it slow. A oh, come on. Is it a one-off? Not a one-off. How there... can you say this for the end of the conversation? We are, they going to esta- are they going to establish a vector to higher rates or can they do a one and done? 
not one and done, but a vector that is very, very shallow. It's one per year. December's Fed raise rates hike month, mm-hmm. and we'll rename okay. the... In honor of Rosenberg, I put out on Twitter, Rho equals MV, linear momentum. It's sort of like, you know, we had to do that. It's Friday. That's good. It's good to, to have a little that. bit. It's the last day of September, so you, you can get away with the math for the rest of today. But in October, I hear there may be a ban on Isn't significant it like math. Ma- it's math-free October this year, right? Yeah. Yeah. So to get, do it now while you can. While you get the medication, I'm going to need it. Jeff Rosenberg of BlackRock, thank you so much. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. From Carnegie Mellon, one of our historians, one of our great economists, Alan Meltzer. Professor Meltzer, it's been far too long. In your recent note, you cite the work of your colleague, Marvin Goodfriend, on the efficacy of negative rates. Within the report, there was little talk of the linkage of Meltzer or Goodfriend or Krugman or um, uh, 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 Bowder economics with the banking system. Do we need to have our economics now of central banks think more about the ramifications on commercial banking? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they, <clears throat> the Dodd-Frank Act destroyed something like from 8,000 to less than 5,500 banks. Those banks, medium-sized, small banks, were the lenders to new and startup businesses and to to smaller firms, and they did it not on the basis of balance sheets, but on the basis of character. And they were mighty important in the growth of the American right. economy, and they've been destroyed. And it's destroyed the, the strength of the financial system, and it's cartelized the system into four or five enormous banks. Just a terrible... Right piece of legislation. Alan Meltzer, I sat behind Marvin uh, Marvin Feldstein of Harvard and Dean Hubbard, Glenn Hubbard of Columbia at the Trump speech at the Economic uh, Club of New York. If you'd been in the front row of that speech, you would have thrown a bread roll at Mr. Trump. When he speaks about the politics and politicization of your central bank, how do you respond? I think he's 100 percent right. Uh, the, The central bank did what no central bank should do and what the federal the original federal reserve act tried mightily to prevent that is it financed the government's deficit at zero interest rates that's the the giving up the surrender of independence i was asked by a british journalist did the federal reserve lose its independence i said no it gave it away it would would you agree alan that they did not do it because they wanted to help uh, Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton in a political race against Donald Trump. They did it because they felt it was the right thing to do. You disagree that it's the right thing to do, but they did not sell out for political reasons. Well, I don't know what was in their minds, uh, and I'm sure that some of them may have wanted to help the administration and believe that they were doing it. But the biggest problem that I have with central banks at the moment, and not just the Fed, is 
that they're all printing money in the belief that they're going to do something about the economy. The economy in the United States, in Britain, and in Japan, or sorry, in Europe and in Japan, have all all have big real problems. Monetary policy cannot do anything about those problems except create future problems. But they can't solve the real problems because they are real problems, not mon- monetary problems. And the first lesson in economics is to separate the two. Well, are they at this point doing harm or just doing no good? <laughs> I'll leave that distinction to others. Well, I mean, the question comes up, though, because uh, is monetary policy at this point, um, you disagree with what they're doing, but what's the impact of it? The impact is that they're doing no good. They're printing money, building up future problems. I mean, do they have a a proposal for what they're going to do about the $2.5 trillion of idle reserves sitting Mm -hmm. on the bank balance sheets? No, they do not. So no one can know whether the what damage there is in the future that's going to right. Professor Meltzer, I've always uh, kidded you about writing volume three of your history of the Federal Reserve. Yes, you may you may want to in the in the energy that you have in the coming decade um, want to consider rules and discretion. Where are we in the great debate of rules and discretion? If you and Mr. Krugman were to have a cup of coffee uh, at the Tepper School in Pittsburgh, well, how would the two of you talk about rules and discretion? Well, I would be for them, and I mean, I'm quite sure he would be against them. Uh, but look, let's look at the at two things which are critical for that. Look at the history of the Fed. In a hundred years, the period in which in which Alan Greenspan from 1986 to 2002 more or less followed a rule and had a medium-term strategy, which is what the rule is supposed to provide, a medium-term strategy. We had the best monetary policy ever that we've had. So that's point one. They've never been able to do that with discretion. The second thing is compare the more or less moderate programmed Swiss National Bank. Under Bretton Woods, the Swiss franc was worth 20 cents. It's now worth more than a dollar. Has that hurt Switzerland? No. Switzerland GDP per capita is now substantially higher than the U.S. GDP per capita. So they've done better than we have. And they've done right. better than we have by a modest policy of medium-term strategy. And that's what we right. lack. Professor, you mentioned Switzerland adjacent is Germany, which is challenged within their banking system. What is the Alan Meltzer prescription for Mario Draghi, Chancellor Merkel, and the German people to bring stability to their banking? The... <clears throat> They need to solve the real problems of the European Central Bank agreement. I mean, when they, when they agreed to the European Central Bank, they took away the one mechanism that they used to adjust Germany, France, and Italy, the major countries there, to, to each other. And they didn't put anything in its place. So the Germans have been pretty good about adjusting prices and wages to reflect, to, to maintain the productivity of Germany. But France and Italy, the second and third largest countries, aren't able to do that politically. 
try as they might, and they have tried in modest ways. So there is no adjustment mechanism. So the way to get the system to move again, to begin to land again, to grow again, the way is to do the real harm, to, to adjust to the real harm, which comes mm-hmm. from the political power that prevents any kind of adjustment. And but until do you... they do that, there's not going to be a successful ECB, and there's nothing that Mr. Draghi can do about that. Well, there you go. You just answered my question. That's not a problem that the ECB can deal with. That has to come from the political leaders. Yes, of course, it's a political problem. But then uh, is Draghi trying to do too much? Is he sort of whistling past the graveyard, spinning into the wind, however you want to put it, uh, with his monetary policy in a, a in a union that the policy doesn't work because of the political side? That's correct. The policy doesn't work because it's not a monetary problem. It's a real political. It's a real problem, which can be solved by political activity. Uh, that is, by the governments of France and Italy doing what, to, to some extent, the governments want to do, yeah. but which their parliaments won't agree to. Alan Meltzer, thank you so much for the time this morning. Professor Meltzer is university professor, Carnegie Mellon University. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.